The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you pray with me once more this morning? And Father, as we even sing in that last song, and considering what we do bring to you, and, and there's a lot of brokenness we bring. Um, just, we are marred by sin. There is a, um, our thoughts are darkened because of sin, because of even the past week or even the past morning. But we come, God, asking that you would please let your face shine upon us this morning. God, that, that in your light we would see the light of truth from your word. God, that it would break through and scatter darkness heal brokenness, comfort the hurting, bring peace to anxious souls. God, we need you, and we need the truth of your word. It is what sanctifies us. And so we ask for this nourishment, for this life to be granted as we do come to worship you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, church, family, have a seat. How are we this morning? Great, Great. good, good. Go ahead and open to Mark chapter 12. Verses 13 through 17, as we read a few minutes ago. All right. I'm very grateful for the privileged opportunity to bring God's word this morning. I would venture to say, as we get started here, I'd venture to say that somewhere in your home, or perhaps in your parents' house or grandparents' house, that is, if they're believers, um, that you could find a coffee mug, perhaps a sticker or a, a fridge magnet or something of that nature with either Matthew 4.19 or Mark 1.17 on it. The verse that says, follow me and I will make you become what? Fishers of men. Fishers of men. So for me, the fridge magnet, stemming way back from childhood, my farthest memory, is still on my parents' refrigerator. Heavily worn, it's, it's faded, it's cracked, but it's holding strong, proclaiming those words Jesus spoke to his disciples. 
I, I recall a conversation I shared with Craig a number of years back during a Friday night gathering at the Bronsons that they hosted at the Bibler's house. I was sharing some thoughts that came to mind prompted by that verse and how there are a lot of illustrations we can draw from fishing in our call to evangelize as fishers of men. An avid and skillful, a skilled fisherman, which I'm not, but one who is, does not go fishing mindlessly. You know, it's quite the contrary. They, the, the location that is selected is very purposeful. The timing of when they fish plays a role. Where the line is cast at the location, how, how deep in the water your bait, fly, or lure is placed, and what your bait or lure is, determined by the time of year, the, the water temperature, the, whether the water is flowing or, or still. You know, the current hatch of bugs in that region that the fish would be biting on. How to, do, how to determine when to even set the hook. You know, sometimes you let them play a little bit, little, little nibs, and then you jerk. Or other times, once you feel something, you want to jerk right away. I mean, all of these things come into play. There is so much that a skilled fisherman's mind put into thought, and it's all important on whether you're going to come home with a good catch or empty-handed. Well, similarly, as fishers of men evangelizing, we are to know, <coughs> excuse me, know our location, you know, the culture of the area, much like the Millers are in, are in Alaska studying grain lean, but, but also us here, you know, where we're placed to know it and to have good timing when we share, you know, to be ready and not force it. You know, learn to perceive those, those open doors to share the gospel. Know how deep in theology is appropriate to go and how much is too much, you know, like what is suitable for this individual that I'm speaking with in this moment? That varies some. Don't use Christianized language. You know, speak the gospel to them in a manner that is relatable in terms they are familiar with. That's why the, the Millers are studying the language of grayling, the culture, so that they are bringing the gospel in terms that fits the culture. Similarly, in whom we're speaking with, we want to communicate it in that manner. And also learning to discern when to set the hook, when to go to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the hook of the gospel. That's the hook to catch men or women. It's the message of the cross by which faith in Christ comes. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's the hook. If the hook is to be set, it's by the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. We are to be fishers of men, just as Jesus told us to be. Now, in all of my fishing experience, 
Never once has a dark chocolate bar with a huge slab of peanut butter on it, never once has such a lure popped out of the water and landed in proximity to me, tempt me to ignore the nearly invisible line attached to it and grab a hold of it for my eating pleasure. That has never happened, nor anything remotely like it. The fish have never tried to catch me. But that is not so with men. That is not so with men. Men will try to catch you. They will try to catch you. Men, you know, people are watching Christians closely and will try to catch them so that they may discredit them. Okay, you know, we, we clean fish after we catch them, remove the innards and the scales. Jesus, through his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, cleanses the men and women caught by the gospel that we share as fishers, by, as fishers of men. Cleansing them, removing sins, sanctifying them. And non-believers will conversely try to catch Christians to mar any respect one has as a follower of Christ, to discredit your name as a Christian, remove your credible reputation as a follower of Christ. And they, they attempt to do so with Jesus here, as we'll see this morning. They attempt to do so, and they will do so also with you and I, his followers. So how, how are his followers, who Jesus is making become fishers of man, how are we not to get caught ourselves? For I believe every Christian would agree, fishers of men are not to get caught themselves and thereby discredited. Our Lord provides the answer in Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. Firstly, with the bait. Firstly, with the bait to be on the watch out for, and then the remedy that holds strong our reputation and, and respect as followers of Christ. It begins with the, with the enticing fly, right, of flattery. The enticing fly of flattery. Let's look at them together, shall we? Let's go ahead and read verses 13 through 14, the enticing fly of flattery. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, there's more in there. There's the flattery. But let's focus on that for a moment, right? Because that's an impressive compliment, wouldn't you say? Super impressive. So let's get this the context of this moment, though, first. We find Jesus here. It's a day after he cleanses the temple. This is a day after that cleansing of the temple. And it's also the same day the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him questioning his authority. It's the same day. To which he, he silenced by wisely asking them a question that they were unwilling, unwilling to answer. And then he taught a parable against them, exposing their error. 
causing them to go away defeated. Defeated, yes, but quickly forming new ranks is what they're doing, right? This is the same day. Forming new ranks, getting some fresh faces to come and oppose Jesus, this time to catch him in his words. They rallied together some of the, of the Pharisees and Herodians to attempt this feat of trapping Jesus in his talk and thereby discrediting him and the authority by which he spoke and acted. And this is no loose go at it. Far from it. Great plotting was behind this attack on him, starting, starting with who they sent. You know, Matthew's gospel says that it was the disciples of the Pharisees and not the Pharisees themselves. No doubt trying to, to further mask their bait, concealing the hook to catch Jesus in his words by downplaying things some. You know, these aren't the Pharisees. You know, this is, this is, uh, uh, excuse me, these are the, they, they had this well-crafted question by those who, who looked less antagon, antag, boy, I should be able to, and, antagonistic? There it is. Thank you. Antagonistic and more like learners. These are the disciples of the Pharisees, not the Pharisees themselves. So they kind of just downplayed it so that Jesus would have his, his guard down, not be suspecting. And joining them, joining these disciples of the Pharisees by evil plot, the Herodians, who were a party among the Jews who were gladly, get this, gladly indebted to the Roman emperor and to Herod, hence their name. The emperor's appointed delegate of that region that Jerusalem resided. So this sect of, sect of people, the Herodians, they made it their business to reconcile the people to that government, Rome, which certainly includes emphasizing all to pay their taxes. Do you see what's going on here? The Herodians pressed hard to the people to pay your taxes, while the Pharisees, zealous for the liberty of the Jews, denied paying taxes, influencing the people, rather, as they were able to be ill of the Roman yoke that they were under. It's these two people groups who come to Jesus this time. Two groups of people who were not aligned at all. Yet, they come together with one question, crafted for one purpose. The hook, if you will. The hook to trap Jesus in his words, to discredit him. Here we have those in opposition to one another, uniting in opposition to Jesus. What do you say, Jesus? You know, is it lawful or is it not? I mean, you can almost hear their wicked, crafty thoughts looming in their heads. You know, like, we got them. We totally got them. For either answer will result in raising a great opposition to him. We got him. He'll be caught either way and not able to get out. For, for if he says it's not lawful then the Herodians will have grounds to incite the government against him. And if he says that it is lawful to pay taxes, then the Pharisees will have established cause to inflame the people against him. Either way, the hook is set. We got him. 
they figured he'd be trapped for sure. You see how well-crafted this plan was? And the fact that those in opposition to one another unite in opposition to Jesus, it still happens today. It happens here, and they will do so against us, his followers. You know, for one example, one may be a Republican, and the other may be a Democrat, not aligned whatsoever, but as agents of the enemy, can and do unite in opposition to Jesus. Opposition to the gospel. Opposition to you and I, whose lamb, whose lives are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one surefire bait used to conceal the hook to catch us is the bait of flattery. The hook here, let's be clear, in the passage, the trap to, to trap Jesus in his words was the crafted question. And it's concealed with this flattery, this opening flattery. Now notice with me that that, that, that which they share is truthful, right? It's truthful. I would agree with every word they said. Would you guys also? It's all true. And it's, it's good to affirm to speak kind words of compliment, to rightly encourage is fitting to do so. I mean, Paul himself in Galatians 4.18 says, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. That's exactly what he's talking about there. And listen to his example he provides in his affirming words to the church of Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. I mean, through 2 through 10, each one of those verses are loaded with affirmations. Listen to this. You can turn there if you'd like. I've got to turn there myself first. He says here, and his opening to this church in Thessalonica. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly, that's affirming, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, there's going to be three here, your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, there's one, that he has chosen you. There's another, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. There's more. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's affirmation after affirmation, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord, look at this closing part, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we, not, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reputation we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
affirmation after affirmation. It's good and godly to do so. So whether it be an employer to an employee or vice versa, or or spouse to spouse, parent to child, child to parent, amongst siblings, between fellow church members, even to a stranger, you observe something done well and right, affirm it. And you yourself do that which is praiseworthy. I recall years back helping a brother in Christ, Mike Ruffner was his name, helping him install the electrical wiring of the new church building under construction in Bend. I was 15 years ago, and I was helping then. <laughs> and if Craig was here, I'd be saying thank you for I'm helping him now. You know, things haven't changed much, which is good. Still helping, but I remember in this task I was working with Mike on, I remember him saying something along the way that stuck to me this day. He said, well, it happened when he was, when completing a portion of a job, he came by and he put his finishing touches on it while saying, we want to be able to sign our name to it. We want to be, and it was something simple, but it was just that finishing touch. We want to be able to sign our name to it. And I knew exactly what he meant. He didn't need to elaborate. You know, do the job well from start to finish. Do the job well from start to finish. Be proud of your work. You know, not, not prideful, but complete your work in a manner that to your ability, the care and effort put into your work is evident in its completion, even if it is only seen by God's eyes. It's his eyes alone that matter, but if acknowledged by someone else, you know, someone else sees and, and makes known to you a job well done, say thank you. It was, it was a joy to do. I praise God for the opportunity and ability to do so. You know, something along those lines. You can receive that. It's good. <clears throat> and it, it could be a, a, a wise decision made at work. It could be something that could be affirmed. A life-saving diagnosis. A, a school project completed. A skill, skillful craft executed. An athletic accomplishment. Whatever it may be, we can humbly receive affirmation in a manner that honors God and it's right to do so. Now that's the danger, right? That's also the danger though. Something right and good can so quickly go south if we are not being watchful. It's not a big leap to go from appropriate recognition of a job well done to flattery. It's a short, quick, baby step stumble into that. That is, unless, of course, unless, of course you're, you're skipping into flattery as one given to despicable self-adulation. But flattery waits at the heels of affirmation. It's just a baby step away. It's just right there, which is why we need to be so watchful. Especially, especially since our culture is inundated with it, right? Flattery of oneself is in. You know, whether it be the creative awards imagined to ensure that every child gets a ribbon, right? 
best bubblegum popper on the lacrosse team. Like, that has nothing to do with lacrosse, but let's give him a ribbon. Or best rested, awarded to the pupil who always slept through class. I got that in college. So it's not even brand new. I mean, flattery is everywhere. I mean, come on. And then there's the recent Peloton commercials and Pandora. Have you guys heard these, right? You feel that Peloton? That's greatness. Like, no, it's not. That's not greatness. Watching Michael Jordan play basketball or Walter Payton run the football or Simone Biles perform gymnastics or Sean White snowboard, that is greatness. What I just did for exercise that isn't greatness. I burned a sweat, nothing more. But we just get fed this, fed this over and over again. A few moments after Marcy and I finished a recent run, I heard my wife, or her and I both heard her watch, enthusiastically say, your friends are dreaming about it. You did it. Nice workout. Way to go. You killed it. We did not kill it at all. It was like a nine plus minute mile. That was, that was our pace that morning. I mean, that's not killing it, but that is the pervasiveness in our world today of flattery. To say that it doesn't, or to say that it exists is an understatement in my mind. We are overrun with it. Truth be told, however, truth be told, we don't need anyone's help. We don't need anyone's help. We flatter ourselves oh too easily. Although our thoughts, or excuse me, allowing our thoughts to go beyond the satisfaction, and there is satisfaction in a job well done, but we allow those thoughts to go bubble up much more than that. Returning our thoughts over and over again, or, or gazing at that well done job every time we go by, accumulating lofty thoughts of self you know, just, oh man, Satan loves to feed us those suggestions every time. Just feed us that. Just funnel it in. We need to be on guard, fellow Christian, to be watchful because we are all susceptible to this. And these Pharisees and Herodians, they come to Jesus with this intent to entice Jesus with these words of flattery to conceal the hook in the question that they've crafted to catch him. And that's just it, isn't it? Their intent, though they laid it on a bit thick, but their intent, the words they spoke, were accurate and true, and they were not wrong in themselves, their words, but it was the motive they had behind it. And that's the difference. It wasn't a pure of heart statement of truth to affirm to the glory of God. No, it was rather, it was deceitful. And it was drawn from their ill motive to trap Jesus in his words that they may discredit him. And the same tactic will be used on us. So we need to be watchful. The lure of flattery is deadly enticing. Jesus, our Lord, isn't fooled by their tactics. He is keen to their plot, and he sees plainly through to their hypocrisy. 
hypocrisy that, that all sinful man is susceptible to, which results in our own self-demise. Please note in the first part of verse 15, Jesus says here, but knowing, well, he's not saying this, but it starts off with, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why do you put me to the test? So you see, he sees right through. They're not being authentic. They are not real in what they are saying. They are not sincere in their approaching presentation. And Jesus sees right through it. It's all fake, which devoid them. It's all fake, so it devoid them of any credit. That is what hypocrisy does, right? You discredit yourself. The self-demise of hypocrisy, which is our second point. Our attackers will certainly be guilty of this, but sadly, so can we. And with either one, the result is the same. You discredit yourself. It's like, it's like the fish jumping into the boat and getting caught themselves, right? Or, or getting caught in a pool of water to be easily picked up. There's no lure necessary. There's not even a hook that is needed. We discredit ourselves with hypocrisy. We lose all respect as a true follower of Christ. It's like, it's like saying you're a Christian but yet never reading your Bible with sincere heart to desire to learn and see Christ revealed in it. Or saying you're a Christian and yet are void of any godly sorrow over sin. No true repentance, but instead delighting in sin and practicing it. It's hypocritical. It's not real. Hypocrisy is sharing about Jesus' love with others, but then living a life that is void of compassion, void of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Rather being quick to scrutinize, quick to pass judgment, quick to become angered. Hypocrisy. Barren of any joy and peace in your life, losing all respect as a true follower of Christ. And I know at different times we've all shared the sin of this. Losing that respect, but there's hope. Because we can own up to it, right? When that happens. We can confess it. We can repent. Repentance restores us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that is where the credit as a Christian can be reestablished because credit is given to Christ whereby we may be forgiven and redirected to live respectful Godward lives to the glory of him. Because of the gospel, through faith in Christ, a truly repentant believer can be restored as a respectful witness of Jesus Christ. You know, he, he makes it possible, not ourselves. He, Jesus does. And returning to the text, despite their hypocrisy and Jesus making known to them 
that he is aware that they are putting him to the test, he provides an answer to their question. You remember just before, he shut his opposers up by asking them a question. Remember that? The chief scribes, the elders, and the, and the uh, chief priests? He asked them a question which just silences them. But this time, he provides an answer, for which I'm th- <clears throat> so thankful for, because their well-crafted question, though there is evil intent behind it, it's a noteworthy question. It's a noteworthy question. To phrase it in a redeemed in a redeemed sense, or to, save, to rephrase it in a redeemed manner, not with ill intent, the question could be stated, as a citizen of heaven and fellow heir with Christ, how am I to properly live, live that out here in this life now where Christ's kingdom has yet to be consummated? You know, Jesus is on the throne. He is king, but we are still in the in-between. The final judgment has yet to come. Evil is still allowed to operate under God's sovereign rule. Should we support this government that is not aligned with your kingship? Or should we not? In other words, what respect are we to show the governing authorities? Should we respect the ruling authorities we are under the yoke of, or should we not? I see that as a legitimate question. Does this have relevance today? Yeah, absolutely it does. You know, how do I, a redeemed child of God, live out my life as a Christian where God has placed me in this world and its corresponding ruling authorities, how do I live that out in a manner that my reputation warrants respect as a follower of Jesus? What is Jesus' answer to that question to which they stand when he answers astonished at? His answer is loyalty. Loyalty. It is what we are redeemed by, his loyalty, and therefore what we are to exhibit. Redeemed by loyalty. Backing up a touch, this is our third point, backing up a touch at the beginning of verse 15 and then reading through that, through verse 17. But knowing their hypocrisy... He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is loyalty. Jesus, he asks for a coin valued as a day's wage, and he draws the people's attention to whose likeness and inscription is on it, which was Caesar's. It would be like taking a $100 bill and saying, whose likeness and inscription do you see? Well, it's President Benjamin Franklin, of the United, one of the foremost founding fathers of the United States of America. Okay, then. Render, therefore, to this ruling authority the things that are theirs, and to God the things that are God, that are God's. 
In short, be a loyal citizen, both as a citizen of heaven, first and foremost, and as a resident alien, a loyal citizen under the governing authority where God has placed you. That's his answer. And Paul elaborates on this matter. And I, want, I do want you to turn here because this is a powerful passage worth putting your eyes on it and not just hearing. In Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, Paul elaborates on this matter. Let's go ahead and read that. One through seven. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad." Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's what we are to to do as Christians, to be loyal first and foremost to God. But as Jesus said, and Paul elaborates to the governing authorities that God has placed. Twice it says that they are his servant. He has placed them. Now, what if the governing authority is in direct conflict to God's law, you ask? Because I heard that question. For that certainly exists today in many parts of the world and increasingly our nation for that matter. It's a valid question to which we can look to the Bible to answer. And let's, let's go to some examples to get that answer. First, the example of Daniel. First, the example of Daniel in the Old Testament. Do you recall what direct conflict existed between Daniel's worship of God and the governing authority he lived under? Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Don't need to, though. Daniel chapter 6. Verses 1 through 10. And note, as we read through this, note Daniel's loyal character. I've been through this through a while, so when I read it in preparation, it's just it's beautiful. 1 through 10. 
It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the higher above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, or he could say loyal. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in conjunction with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement. There's that union again, right? To the king and said to him, get ready for some flattery. O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. The, key, the hook is set, right? Therefore, the king, Darius, signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew, and that's just powerful, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows in the upper, in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. What an account. Daniel was unwavering. He remained loyal to God and to the consequences of not submitting to the king's edict. If we kept reading, you would learn that he rendered and rendering to both the things that belonged to both, worship to God and punishment as decreed by King Darius for those who acted against King Darius's mandate. Reading further, you would see Daniel sentenced to death in the lion's den and still remaining unwaveringly loyal, trusting in his God who miraculously delivered him from the mouths of the lions. And so often those go together, right? That trust and faith, David's David's loyalty. Here's another one. David's loyalty to God and to King Saul, to both, to God and to King Saul, who Saul tirelessly sought to kill him, is another striking example. Today's family table talk will take us to an amazing account in that biblical narrative. If you go through that, he's loyal to both God and to the ruling authorities even though he's running from him for his life. But there's accounts there where he is loyal. He has opportunity to kill him. His old men are saying, God has delivered him into your hands, just as he said he would. And he didn't. 
He respected the authority, even though he wasn't respectful. Striking account. We could read similar accounts in Acts. Acts chapter 5, for instance, provides the account where the Holy Spirit was doing these mighty works through Peter and the apostles, who, because of these works, because of what the Holy Spirit was doing, they were arrested and put into public prison, being strictly charged not to teach in the name of Jesus. And that very night, they were miraculously delivered by an angel of the Lord who charged them just as they were delivered. He charged them to go right back and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, the life in Christ, which they did not hesitate to do. They remained loyal. And when confronted by those who arrested them, when they discovered that they weren't in jail anymore, but they were actually preaching the name of Jesus, the very name that they strictly charged them not to teach, what did they say to them? Do you remember? said, we must obey God rather than men. A reply that resulted in them getting beaten, to which they rejoiced greatly that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, whom they preached. And all through the book of Acts, we never see the apostles fight back or resist the authorities arresting them or punishing them. They don't do that. Oh, they stand firm in resolve in what they believed and bore witness to. Stephen stood there as long as he was able until they stoned him and he couldn't hold his ground anymore. But he stood firm there, unwaveringly, unwaveringly there, yes, but they received the consequences issued forth by the ruling authority they were under. In a sense, remained loyal, rendered respect to the ruling authorities by not resisting the resulting consequences of their actions. Loyal to God and loyal to the ruling authorities which may include punishment, death, persecution, when their loyalty to God directly conflicts with the ruling authorities. And so it is with us today who follow in the footsteps of those who've gone before us. Let's be clear, though. You know, this is not speaking of protecting yourself or someone else who's being attacked by a predator of sorts, a bully at school, a malicious brute, a sex predator, you know, wicked people of that nature. They are attacking you, a family member, a friend, a vulnerable stranger. You know, intervene, intervene, rise up and defend, defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's what the Bible says. Help the helpless. Someone breaks into my home with intent to harm, I will not stand by idle. My life will be spent on protecting my family. But if it is the ruling authorities in place who come to take me away to prison, issue forth punishment because I preach the gospel, 
because I am known as a follower of Christ, standing on on scripture, standing on God's word, I don't believe I'm to fight back. I am not to resist arrest on the grounds that I am a Christian. And that day may come. Jesus didn't resist arrest, did he? When a mob came to take him at the Garden of Gethsemane? Loyalty. It is what Christ calls us to. It's what Christ, as our forerunner, was and is now. He remains loyal. The we, and this is what so often hurts, right, is we so often are not. We are not. Christ remained loyal, though he was deserted by all his followers the night of his betrayal. Remember that? It wasn't just Judas. Judas wasn't the only one who betrayed Jesus that night. Yes, he may have been one that was, who betrayed him with a kiss, but every one of his disciples fled. Every one of them. Every one of them deserted him. Peter deserted, but he was lingering in the outskirts, right? He was warned. He was given a warning that he would deny Jesus three times that night before the rooster crowed a second time. And even with that warning, it did not prevent him from doing that very same thing. But our Lord, who remained loyal through it all and fulfilling the Father's will, he looked at Peter in the moment, in the moment that third denial was made, which is just earth-shattering to think about. In that moment, he curses, I do not know the man, he catches the eyes of Jesus, or rather Jesus' eyes catch his. And I do not see those eyes as being angry eyes. I see those eyes as being unwaveringly steadfast in love, compassion, brokenhearted, yes, that those go together. I think children, youth, you often see that in your parents' eyes, Right? Loving you, but brokenhearted at the same time. Those are the eyes that locked with Peter's in that moment. From the cross, he was a loyal son giving instruction to his disciple, John. You know, care, take care of my mom when I'm gone. I'm, I'm dying, obviously. He was a loyal son, even in those moments. Our Lord is loyal. And he is loyal now, despite the times we break faith with him. We read that in the Old Testament. They broke faith. We do that now. But he still remains faithful to us. He he corrects us. He restores us, strengthens us, and sustains us over and over again. Because the beauty of it is that we're a part of him, you see? You know, he has united us to himself through faith. Even as prayed this morning, we are the members of his body. We're part of his body. He is the head. So even though we break faith, are faithless, he remains faithful. He's united us to himself. 
He remains faithful, though we fail. We ourselves fail to perfectly uphold our end of the covenant. What type of covenant is it? It's a covenant of grace. The covenant is a covenant of grace. And our Lord's loyalty, you see, to the covenant keeps us secure in him through to the end where we're able to come to him time and time again and confess, confess the sin that broke faith with him. Repent of that sin. Receive forgiveness through his atoning blood shed on the cross. Be restored that we may once again walk in obedience to him with joy and the power of the Holy Spirit. Fulfilling our calling from God and Jesus' work in us to become fishers of men with his equipping and empowering. May we not get caught ourselves, but rather be productive fishers of men as reputable followers of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word this morning, I firstly just want to ask for your help for us to be on guard against flattery. Help us hold that rightly, God, to your praise with sincere thankfulness. You know, receive accolades. A job well done, but do it in a manner that is so quickly reflected to your praise. To give you the glory. To give thanks to you. That we would be uh, constant in being vigilant to be watchful of any lofty thoughts that we would take take beyond, well, not take beyond, but any, any, any compliments that we would allow become lofty thoughts to stir in our mind and our heart to think much of ourselves. God, may we be watchful of that and direct it immediately towards praise to you. And God, keep us, guard us from hypocrisy in all its forms. I think of not being who we are to try to, to get our way, how we can be guilty of that. Also, in not living in accordance to what we say we believe. I think those are the two main camps that we can venture into in hypocrisy. God, keep us from that. I don't want to discredit myself. We don't want to discredit ourselves, God, to, dis, um, to bring demise on ourselves by our own actions or lack thereof. Guard us from that, God. May we be an authentic people, broken, transparent, imperfect, yes, but but real and what our struggles are and where our hope lies. 
guard us from that, God. And help us, I pray, to be known as loyal men and women, firstly and above all to you, but also to our fellow men within our households, to our local church, our employer, where you've placed us to live, the encompassing area of influence. God, we want to be loyal. Help us be faithful. Help us to consider the faithfulness of our Lord, your love for us that is never changing, that in spite of our breaking faith with you, God, that we can still come and be forgiven, we can confess that sin and be restored. And I think also, Father, of of a guarding of our hearts to be bitter, where one has not been loyal to us, perhaps, whether it be at work, but probably the most painful is if, if when it's someone who's close, a close friend, a brother or sister in Christ, a child, a spouse, a parent, where trust has been broken, where where there is hurt because of it, where there is pain. Like, I, I've been loyal and I was betrayed. God, I pray against that betrayal to be allowed to be bitterness, to take root in our, in, in our heart that would grow and, and, and really just wreck our lives. I pray against that, God. May we model like you, Lord Jesus, who was betrayed more than once, who was even sinned against now in that same manner, breaking faith with you, that you remain faithful. Help us, God. not be bitter. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people. And I pray now as we as we close in prayer that you would apply the truth received deep within. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.